Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Ten point four percent. Five percent chance for first, five point four percent chance for second. Ten point four percent. One in ten shot that this table is being flipped on Monday, May eighth at the draft lottery. When you frame it like that, I'll take those odds. You'd help me. And with like my upward motion from this side and and you hulking it from that side, that means that's end of days for Brad. He's not surviving that. Yeah, that's right. I'd say, why do you do this to me? But the real question here is, why do you do this to yourself? Oh, I'm sick. I'm broken, man. I, I joke about it so openly because it's not happening, of course. But folks, another 82-game Red Wings season has come and gone. That is another full season of uh, Detroit Red Wings coverage by the Winged Wheel podcast. And another draft lottery that actually matters for Detroit in any kind of statistical way. Not as much as previous ones, but yet, yeah, once again, we are doing a live stream for the NHL draft lottery. Never are you going to see us so um, upset for some exciting content, but you know, if we're not doing a, a draft stream, uh, a draft lottery live stream, it means things are going much better for the Red Wings rebuild. So not quite yet, but as you said last episode, Brad, I, I can't wait until we don't do them anymore. I am very excited for the day we're not doing this anymore because I think there's a realistic chance that I could get through that entire draft stream, draft lottery stream, without saying a word. Everybody will understand fully what I'm, you know, quote unquote saying, just with the look on my face. And then hey, that's that's what Evan does. You have to find your own shit. And then when the Red Wings card comes up, and it's the Red Wings logo, I can just nod and leave. <laughs> yes, I can't wait till we say absolutely nothing when we see the Red Wings card at nine. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what we're all just going to stare deadpan at the camera. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, folks, welcome to the Winged Wheel podcast. A lot to talk about this episode as we start our Detroit Red Wings season in review. Uh, we take a look at the Red Wings. Well, we just outlined it for you. Their draft lottery odds. We take a look at the playoffs upcoming, uh, some changes across the world of the NHL and plenty, plenty more. Uh, welcome to the Winged Wheel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. Like I said, on this episode, we are going to be starting off our Detroit Red Wings season in review process. This is probably going to span multiple episodes, but for today, we are going to give you our overall broad thoughts on the Detroit Red Wings season as Steve Eisenman's team and Derek, L- the newly coached Derek Lalone squad went through their first 82-game uh, season under Lalone's uh, uh, tenure. The high points, the low points of the season, we'll talk about some MVP candidates from within the Red Wings, uh, players who are most improved, players who are disappointed, and then probably we'll start to take a finer look at the forward group today. We'll take a look at uh, news from across the NHL, which will include the Stanley Cup playoffs, which kick off on Monday night. Uh, we'll start to make our predictions so you can get a good measure of just how wrong those are going to be, and then uh, some coaching changes that have happened across the NHL, and who knows what, what else will come up before overtime. Before all that, Two things I want to let you know. First of all, to all of you who have signed up uh, to become a member of the Dub Dub Club, so to speak, to uh, support the Winged Wheel Podcast on Patreon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Patreon.com slash Winged Wheel Podcast. If you want to know how to support the show and you want to go that extra mile, uh, patrons are the reason we do everything that we do. They get access to our Patreon-exclusive overtime episodes, which have been a blast lately. Uh, The 
Patreon exclusive Winged Wheel Podcast Discord, and they're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. We uh, give away two tickets to every Detroit Red Wings home game this season, the vast majority of them going directly to Patreon supporters. Also, our expanded content network, which has started with Expected by Whom, uh, that show, that that's all made possible by our Patreon supporters as well. So patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. And speaking of Expected by Whom, started by or hosted by Prashant Iyer and Sean Shapiro, it's a new hockey podcast under the Winged Wheel Podcast uh, content umbrella network. What We don't know what to call it yet, but uh, we've launched this new show hosted by Prashant and Sean, and they launched their first episode last Friday. Again, it's a new hockey podcast uh, that seeks to prove that numbers and humans can coexist, expected by whom we'll dive into the world of advanced analytics, the eye test, and the human stories across the NHL and world of hockey. So uh, offering a unique lens into uh, many different stories across the NHL, looking not only at the number side of things, but how it fits into uh, the way the game is played, how you see it. And of course, Sean brings his uh, uh, really excellent writing and uh, the the human stories like the Jake Wallman, Texas Roadhouse story that we all know and love, and uh, it kind of brings those concepts together. So they launched their first episode on Friday. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's on YouTube under the Winged Wheel podcast channel. It's listed as a separate podcast, uh, and it's on pretty much every platform. I think Google Podcasts has just taken a couple extra uh, days to set off. But uh, yeah, give a listen to Expected by Whom, the first expansion podcast on the Winged Wheel podcast network. The Vegas Golden Knights of Winged Wheel Podcast expen- Expansion Pods. <laughs> that wasn't bad. Eh. Yeah, well. <laughs> okay. The Red Wings ended up at ninth best. After 82 games, they have the ninth best lottery odds. Washington choked a 3 nothing lead, was it, at some point? And 4-1. And that is exactly why there are so many teams worse than Detroit this season. Because it shouldn't even have been a surprise that that happened. Washington they were playing the Devils and it was cool seeing Luke Hughes score his first NHL goal in overtime but yeah this was the season of Connor Bedard they were a lot of teams that were you know tanking blatantly Mm -hmm. tanking for Washington with all due respect not being one of them that just kind of like Detroit happened very naturally yeah um and yeah it's it is what it is I think Two ways to look at it. Uh, if you had told every Red Wings fan late February when they were in a playoff spot that they'd be picking ninth overall, um, there would have been a lot of flames, fury, and swear words. But if the Red Wings were going to be back in the lot, the lottery, they were in a position to have been worse off than picking ninth. So, you know, I guess you got to take the small victory in that. Yeah. We there was that window that came together at the end of the year where it was eighth to eleventh was their range and ninth to settle in ninth, I'll take it. Really, they weren't going to catch, and I say catch Philadelphia. Yes, they they could have lost some key games where I think they outperformed their their roster, especially post trade deadline. But asking a team to lose intentionally is just not a thing in pro sports. We've we've hammered that point a lot, so we're not going to get back into that. Really, Philadelphia was a st- substantially worse team on paper. Arizona, substantially worse team on paper. And, and don't even get me started on like the Montreals and San Jose's. So Detroit finished. I honestly think, like you said, Brad, it could have gone a lot worse based on how good their roster was. The injuries, though devastating to the team and to the playoff hopes and all that, they came at the right time to kind of maximize what was reasonable in terms of Detroit's lottery odds this season. 
Well, the bleak view is of all the teams that finished below Detroit, only one of them wasn't blatantly tanking, yeah. whether intentionally or unintentionally. Sorry, Columbus and Philly. Um, so of all the teams who are trying to compete for a playoff spot at some point this season, Detroit finished the second worst of them. The optimistic view here is most of that came in the absolute free fall the Red Wings went on for the last uh, month or so. Mm-hmm. And that came with a largely different roster than they had for most of the season between Heronic, Bertuzzi, and Sunkvist getting traded, which are guys that Eisenman is probably going to try and replace in some fashion in this offseason, and injuries to Rasmussen, Zadina, Fabry, you know, say what you want about him. Sherratt missed a lot of time. Huso missed a bunch of time. This roster that went into free fall wasn't the team we saw fight their way all the way into a playoff spot 70% of the way through the season. So if the Red Wings come back with a roster looking far closer to that one, you know, obviously it's not going to be easy to replace Pertuzzi and Heronic, but, you know, as we talked about the trade possibilities with Winnipeg or Ottawa or whatever that might be, and some shrewd free agent moves, this this team should come back pretty similar, arguably a little better, because we hope we don't see the sophomore slump from Raymond. We hope we don't see the slow start from Raymond, uh, from Cider. We get a full season of Beargren, maybe Soderblom, maybe Edvinson. And there's very, very reasonable expectation for improvement, possibly substantial improvement. But it's hard to definitively say that with the way this season ended, though the roster was depleted. So the current odds that the Red Wings have, uh, like I mentioned at the top of the show, 5.0% chance to uh, win first overall, i.e. Connor Bedard, and a 5.4% chance to win second overall i.e. Uh, Adam Fantilli, or if it pleases you, Leo Carlson, or even Matt Vemichkov. And then the only other options they have, they can't pick third through eighth. They could pick ninth, which is a 64.4% chance, which is statistically their best odds, or yep, for their best odds as to where they're going to land. 23.5% chance at 10th and 1.7% chance at 11th. So in order, they're most likely to pick ninth, 10th, second, first, and then 11th. Oh, so you're telling me it's more likely they fall back a spot than win the lottery. Yes, absolutely. Oh, okay. We haven't experienced that before, so that would be unique and not at all fitting. Right. Yeah. That's not, uh, that's not part of the Red Wings story, so to speak. Like I said, this table will be flipped if they move up in any capacity. If it's second, we'll, we'll go through our paces and like, oh, we came so close to Connor Bedard. But in reality, there's so much joy. This table might do two rotations before it hits the ground and crushes Brad's tiny, tiny man legs. (laughs) (laughs) yeah something like that so uh and just a refresher of the rules you can only move up 10 spots in the draft lottery so st louis who is uh, 10th last and vancouver who are who is 11th last are the only ones eligible behind detroit to move up to first overall all non-playoff teams can win the lottery so to speak but they can only move up 10 spots okay the detroit red wings season is over 35 37 and 10 record like brad mentioned it was a little bit of a free fall especially for the last month or so the trade deadline uh marked kind of the direction the team was going uh they finished with what was it one two three four five straight losses starting with the buffalo shootout loss and ending with a five nothing loss to tampa bay on the road 
overall impressions from this season? What stands out to you? You know, broad strokes, storylines. Are you disappointed based on the roster? Is this about what you expected? Where are you right now on the way the Red Wings wrapped up their 2022-2023 season? There's a lot of good, but there's also a lot of bad and questions that remain unanswered with this team. Um, as as I will point out, and that everyone remembers, I did pick this team to finish seventh in the division, which was 100% accurate. Lobster Domus strikes That's again. That's right. Um, the universe was just telling me something that day. Um, but I didn't think they would get there the way that they did. I thought the other teams would improve more dramatically, whereas the Red Wings did, I think, improved or improve as a team, and then the wheels just completely fell off. I, I saw a lot of growth out of the team. They made some great moves to sort of shore up the depth, but then the the wheels just sort of fell off. So uh, for me, you know... At the end of the day, they're picking somewhere maybe in the top 10. And I guess it depends how you feel about where this team is with their prospects and the players they have in the lineup who will be there when they're good. Um, For me, it was just an okay season. And I, I have a lot of questions remaining on how this team is going to continue to improve and find elite talent. Um, So I... I think the road only gets a little bit more difficult, but I would imagine the team improves next year, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, and I, I share the sentiment, Evan, that it is there is an air of disappointment that you can't shake right now. I think a lot of that largely is like there aren't those standalone storylines that are really thrilling and don't have to be accompanied with this is a, a cup competitive team. So what I mean is last season they had Mo, Mo Sider as the de facto Calder winner by the time the season ended everyone knew it was coming Lucas Raymond had a really successful rookie campaign as well uh, there was you could start to see the shape of the future take form in Detroit this season I think there were a lot of positives for sure but it almost seems like things were in stasis and I, I there's two sides to that coin one is we said at the start of the year with the roster constructed as it is, you couldn't expect too much movement. But two, it, you can't be faulted for being somewhat disappointed with an 80-point result. Again, you know, Brad talked about the way injuries completely depleted this team, especially towards the end of the season. I think that 80 points could have been very easily been 86 points, but ifs and buts don't get you anywhere or however the saying goes, it's 80 points is 80 points. You are your record, and that's where the Red Wings landed. So overall, I think we saw... Some really strong positives that you can draw on. I think we'll, we'll have a lot of discussion on what Derek Lalonde has brought the, to this team's structure in terms of systems and, and overall the resilience of this team and the fact that they seem to have some kind of identity. Uh, I think the fact that they were in the mix with the Buffaloes, the Pittsburghs, the uh, the Floridas, etc. for that second wildcard spot, even if it was just for a hot minute, those are really, those are substantial points that you have to draw on. We saw Mo Sider at the lowest point of his his game at the start of the year and the way he turned around towards the end, I think next season is going to be his best one yet. Agreed. And we saw the emergence of players like Jake Wallman. We saw uh, Jontin Berggren come in. We saw a lot of players kind of take the step that they needed. I, I was, I'm really uh, um, hopeful about what Simon Edvinson can bring after seeing his nine-game audition. But then the lows were low too. I mean, they still landed where they landed and they're in a, as you point out a lot, Evan, they're in a very stacked Atlantic division, so the road isn't getting any easier. You're right. 
Yeah. Uh, again, echoing what I said earlier, if you view this as a tale of two separate seasons, you can come away very optimistic because the Red Wings, as they were constructed, were a playoff team right up to the trade deadline for the most part. I think it was a couple game difference. Those two games in Ottawa, really. And that was, I think they had a couple injuries throughout the year, but for the most part, a healthy roster. And we saw what they could do. We saw who was leading this team. We saw, you know, growth from some players. We saw, you know, a bit of stagnation from others. And then, yeah, you can look at the free fall and there's no way around that. It happens. It sucks. A um, lot of free fall as a team, a lot of free fall from individual players, a lot of uh, concerning performances to the end of the year, but that also gave opportunity for, you know, the Simon Evansons of the world to come up and, and see what they did. And if we're looking to the future now, you can see the formula for how this team is going to be good because we saw it for a lot of the season. Malone's defensive system worked with very mediocre pieces, not bad pieces, but like not cup contending forwards or defense. And it worked very, very well. They were hovering in the top half of the NHL defensively for most of the season. Um, we saw, you know, a greatly improved PK for most of the season. We saw an improved power play for most of the season. Team still struggled to score offensively, but top to bottom, they were a very, very competitive team for 70% of the season. And, you know, if that formula is what's going to be the formula going into next season, okay. But as we talked about a million times, the problem became very obvious uh, very early in the season, and it just got more pronounced uh, as the season drawn. This team can't score goals. This team struggles mightily to score goals, and they have no in-house solutions coming to the degree that they need, you know, with all due respect to Casper and Mazur. Um, and the Outside market doesn't look very promising either. So Eisenman's got to do something bold. But the formula is here. The Red Wings had a very, very strong bottom six. They had a lot of breakout performances from some key players. And the prospect pipeline looks very, very strong for what it is. So there is 80% the core of a championship team in the organization right now. It's just unfortunately that 20% is not easy to acquire. Derek Lalonde did talk in his end-of-season presser about, you know, the big focus of this year was accountability, especially on team defense, and and that came through. They they had, I think, 33 fewer goals against, and uh, we that end-of-the-season pain that came with a lot of the injuries inflated the number of goals against as well. But still, overall, we saw that they didn't get caved as badly. They hung in games longer, and, and everyone did play a little bit more of a responsible style of game, or at least that's what they were you know, kind of molded into to buying into. But yeah, I agree. That offense needs to come, and, and that's what Derek Lalonde said, is is finding a way to generate that team offense. Something Steve Eisman really hammered, as much as you can, you have to read between the lines with that guy a lot. It's kind of like Evan that way. Uh, he wants a lot of this growth to come from within. It's very obvious that they think Lucas Raymond can be providing more. It's very obvious that they think... Uh, Bergeron is going to be providing more. It's very obvious that they think highly of Casper, that uh, they they expect even a little bit more from Valeno even. So I think that's true. The the amount to, 
that that's true. Like the amount of that internal improvement, how much offense that can provide. I think a lot can come from like the Raymond types, but you still need more externally, but we'll get into that more after. Let's get our high points and low points for this season. And I'm going to cheat and go first because I'm already talking. There is no beating the high point, which was the month of February. Post All-Star break, you know, starting, I think it was a game against Calgary at home all the way through the uh, Tampa Bay 3-0 loss where Vasilevsky essentially stole that game for Tampa Bay. That stretch of hockey was the most excited hockey town has been since we started this podcast over eight years ago. That's the first time we all believe that this team could actually break in and make the playoffs since the the playoff drought started in Detroit. That was the best version of Red Wings hockey that we've seen in a long, long time. Was it a confluence of, of events where, you know, they played Calgary twice, they played Vancouver twice in there, and they played a beat-up Washington team? Yeah, of course, but still, they got the wins and they moved. They, they had themselves in the mix for that period of time. You would be hard-pressed to find a Red Wings fan who didn't believe at that at that time that they could do something and squeeze into the playoffs at the end of the season well it wasn't even just that was the high point because of the volume of wins at the end of it it came with a very big win against the rangers and the rangers are a very good team and like you alluded that game against tampa where vasilevsky stole it red wings ran tampa's show that game so we were all wondering you know coming out of the that win streak yeah okay a lot of mediocre teams in there good that they're winning those games because in Years of Red Wings past, they haven't done that. Um, and then they beat the Rangers, and it's like, all right, is this an illusion? And even though they lost the game to Tampa, everybody went, no, this team is for real. You don't walk in and play the team that has made the Cup Finals three years in a row and, you know, outside of one player, absolutely make them look like a house league team. So, you know, that was the very clear high point of the season because it's the only time, arguably the the single week in the last seven years where we went yeah this team could make the playoffs for me my high point is the millisecond before the puck dropped in ottawa for the <laughs> yeah. two games in ottawa yeah sneak peek to the low point of the season that is uh just yeah i i would say for me like what you guys said that brief window of time was the most confident and probably the most excited we have been, and probably the Red Wings fandom has been in a long, long time. So those two games against Ottawa, low point of the year for, for you guys? I mean, how is it not? That was, uh, you know, that I understand how those games went for Detroit. Like, let's, let's not beat around the bush. They got dummy. They got absolutely bullied in every regard on the scoreboard, on the ice, mentally, like, the Ottawa showed up for those games and they knew the ramifications of them and Detroit didn't. And I'm not going to try to make excuses, but that's probably one of the first times in the last, you know, half a decade that Detroit went into a playoff type situation and was game planned against actively. Not that teams don't game plan against Detroit, but I mean like a team sat down and said this game, these results have postseason implications and how do we develop a unique game plan to make sure that we walk away with two victories? And, and Ottawa ex- like planned, executed, and absolutely rocked Detroit those two games. In retrospect, it's it maybe shouldn't have been surprising. And I, I don't mean just because of personnel, but I also mean, you know, this is the first kind of 
season where the, the Red Wings have any, have had anything close to an identity in a long while. So it, it was a first real test, and it's hard to ask them to chalk up to much more than what they did. But you also would have wanted them to chalk up to more than what they did after winning, I think it was like seven of eight games prior. Like that was such a harsh buzzkill, especially right before the trade deadline too. And Ottawa was doing the same thing, right? Like they're still trying to establish their identity. I think it's very... It's defined for them now, but they're trying to find their way as well. So it wasn't like they're walking into a game where it was the Rangers who who are in the playoffs. They know what they're doing. It was basically, I won't say a carbon copy, but it's a team who's in sort of the same realm as the Red Wings were at that moment. You talk a lot about the Atlantic Division, Evan. The Red Wings right now can't compare themselves to Boston. They can't compare themselves to Toronto those those teams are just so much further along in their past. They're they're practically playing in a different sport right now, based on. It's th- like uh, it's like you golfing and then you turn the PGA Tour on. <laughs> yeah. It's it's yeah. Well, me too. Evan had a very patient round with me last weekend. A lot. Well, yesterday. <laughs> oh God! Wow! Yeah. Shows you how long your it therapist took. told you to really block <laughs> yeah. that one out. Eh? <laughs> but you know, you look at if you're Detroit, you look at Ottawa, and you look at Bo- or uh, Buffalo. Those are the teams you have to be keeping pace with. That's your opponent. And I'm sure in a little while, Montreal is going to pull themselves into that mix. But if you want in, if you want to, in this next generation of the Atlantic Division, be competitive, you have to be keeping pace with them. So that was a, a, a litmus test in a lot of ways. <laughs> Man, it sucked. The argument could be in the long run, it was beneficial. Yeah. Because Ottawa's out of the Bedard sweepstakes now. Detroit's still in it. And we got what our picks three or four spots higher. And then there was all the returns uh, on the Bertuzzi and Heronic trade that they otherwise wouldn't have had. Well, Steve Eisman does has said that he would have taken at least for sure the Heronic trade because the offer was too good. How much you believe a, a GM who says anything is is one thing or another. Um but yeah, the, the fact of the matter is the Red Wings lost two key games and then sold at the deadline. So yeah, and long term, they're probably better for it. But, you know, like I said on Twitter, and like you mentioned earlier, we better not be sitting here and having the same conversation next year. Well, <laughs> do we do our season preview now? <laughs> but, but I'm not even saying, I don't expect the Red Wings to make the playoffs. And I understand, we better not be picking in the top 10. This better, our worst case scenario next year has to be somewhere around where Buffalo is right now. Yeah, okay, didn't make so the does, playoffs. where do teams like Buffalo go, though? That's it's, it's welcome to the Atlantic Division. There's no good answer here, but you have to get better regardless of what the teams are doing in front of you. Yep. The Red Wings proved they could hang in the playoffs all the way up to the trade deadline this year. There's no reason they shouldn't be hanging into the playoffs an extra month next year like Buffalo did this year. You know, obviously, do I expect them to... They, I could be sitting here perfectly content with the Red Wings season next year and they finish seventh again. Because I expect Ottawa to improve. I expect Buffalo to improve. I don't expect any of the big four in the Atlantic to really fall off. I don't care. <laughs> can't, can't have a repeat of this. If they're picking 13th next year and we don't care about the lottery or we don't care about the draft pick because we're happy with the improvement of the team and whoever they pick at 13 is just a nice bonus, great. That's what That's what we should be looking at. Because I think one of my predictions... Preseason was, I can see a reality where the Red Wings improve their point total and finish lower in the division, which is exactly what happened. The Red Wings put up more points this year than they did last, and they dropped in the Atlantic. 
they went from sixth to seventh. So not saying that's exactly the scenario that's going to play out next year, but it, 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 we're past the point of rebuilding. We're past the point of this. It's, oh no, Pierre Dorian syndrome. No, it, hey, that might work out well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But hey, Pierre Dorian might be the one to help the Red Wings out of this. But either way, uh, <laughs> that's another topic, off season yeah. topic. Um, they need to be playing competitive March and April hockey games. That's, that's the reality of next season. And again, to circle it back to season review, they showed they can do that. Yeah. Now it's Eisenman's job to not send this team backwards in the off season. And it's not a great free agent crop, but there's a lot of potential for more of the Ole Mata, Dominic Kubelik type signings. The guys who can improve you in the holes. Uh, there's a couple teams that might present some very interesting trade opportunities. Obviously, Ottawa, who knows what's going on with the Brinket. Winnipeg might have several players of interest, depending on what they decide to do this offseason. And I'm sure there'll be one or two other teams who enter that realm that we're not fully expecting right now. Um, but there, there's reason for optimism. And I can sit here being disappointed that we're picking in the top 10 again. Next year, if we're picking in the top 10 again, it's not disappointment. It's anger. It's we, we're past this. We shouldn't be here. So to circle it back to the season in review, let's take a, let's start to take a look at the players themselves and, and maybe we'll assign some very loose awards here. MVP is an easy one in my mind. I won't say it has to be Larkin, but for me, Dylan Larkin was the one player who showed up most consistently throughout the entire season. I think even when the Red Wings were at their lowest point, Larkin was, you know, playing like the team captain and really was for the most, for most of the season was Detroit's best player uh, in a contract year. So, you know, that's something that happens all across sports where players play their best hockey or their, their best performances in their contract years. But still, team captain showed up all year. Larkin's MO was his MO and just grinded like crazy and best point production. Uh I don't see how it could be in terms of consistency across the board, how he performed the entire season, anyone other than than Dylan Larkin in my mind. Larkin's the easiest and obvious answer. So just, just for the sake of getting another name out there, up until those Ottawa games, you could have made a very good argument for Vili Huso. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then obviously the back third of his season went completely off the rails. Uh, but before that, he looked every part uh, the a legitimate NHL starting goalie who could drag a team into the playoffs. Yeah, that last third really kind of sunk the perspective and, and the the label of the season, what people maybe have a, the impression of his whole year. But yeah, those first two thirds, for the most part, he was he was the inverse of what Alex Nedeljkovic brought to the table. He won games for Detroit when Detroit was still kind of finding their identity. We saw some players kind of struggle to to fit into Derek Lalonde's system right off the hop, which was something that we warned would happen. It was natural for the players and the coach to adjust. That that takes some uh, some time, but Vili Husso really kind of filled in that gap and gave them the room to make mistakes, kept them in the picture for you know longer than maybe they should have been, especially at the start of the year. So credit to Vili Husso. Um, I have one more name, but I'll let you go first, Evan. Yeah, I mean, you guys covered the two that are probably the most deserving. Like Larkin had 20 more points than David Perron, at, who was second on the team yeah. in points. Um, 
79 points in 80 games for Larkin, so uh, a career high and very close to that point per game total. Almost nauseatingly close, but yeah. They had yeah. to dress him for that Tampa game, huh? I know, I know. And um, I agree with what you guys said about Billy Huso, too. I think we sort of found his upper limit of games as a, you know, really a first-time, full-time starter. Mm-hmm. Um, so those those would definitely be my two. Um, you know, maybe hats off to Mo Sider as well. You know, he, he played on the top pairing the entire year in his second year in the NHL, uh, which is extremely commendable and difficult to do. Um, you know, honorable mention as well to David Perron, like comes into a new team, new systems, a, a bad team, and uh, second on the team, um, provided a ton of veteran leadership. And honorable, honorable mention, maybe Jake Wallman. Yeah, that's who I was going to say. Like, also jumps into the first uh, uh, defense pairing and has has strong success. Um, so, you know, I think there's still more in the tank with Jake Wallman, um, and I'm sure he's ready to prove that next season. So I think those are sort of the guys I would highlight. I don't think there really is anybody after that that I could would really go to bat for and debate as the the team's MVP. Um, yeah, th- yeah, those four are sort of the the ones I would. But Larkin for sure is would be my MVP. For me, Wallman really stands out. I, I don't think you can call him the team's MVP this season. Most improved, maybe I don't know. Well, it's hard to say most improved when this was kind of his first. Big, big opportunity, yeah. right? Like he most he, surprising. Yeah, it could be, especially with how he helped. You know, with how much most Sider struggled on the top pair, partially of his own accord at the start of the year, and partially because he just did not mesh well with Ben Sherratt, who who didn't work out on the top pair. Jake Wallman did the exact inverse and elevated uh, most Sider's game. And you know, we're not talking about a massive producer here. Nine goals, nine assists. Like he, that's not going to be. He's not going to get Norris votes, but Jake Wallman's effects on the ice cannot be. You can't overstate how important his his impacts were and, and basically how he elevated and filled in a very important hole in that defense. Like the Red Wings have a number one left defenseman for this season, and depending on how Edvinson does, I'd wager that that's going to be Jake Wallman for most of next year, if not all of next year. Like the, his, his emergence really was great. Was he perfect? No. But uh, very few players, if any, on the Red Wings were, so... Yeah, credit to Jake Wallman on uh, on the positive front. Let's talk about most improved. You mentioned that, Evan, and I think that's something that we need to uh, to talk about because a lot of players kind of came into Detroit either for the first time or, uh, you know, not the first time in Michael Rasmussen's case, who's going to be the obvious answer for, for a lot of folks, and made a bigger impact this season. So for most improved, who do you guys track or who would uh, stand out to you? Yanni Burgers. He went from not making the team out of camp to being a regular contributor offensively in the top nine for the basically the entire season from that point on. Jonathan Bergeron is who he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Bergeron. Uh, no, we we heard Dylan Larkin's presser. It's Yanni Burgers. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and you know, not that Bergeron came out of nowhere. He was a highly touted prospect coming off a very strong season in the AHL and a very strong season in the SHL before that. But with a player of his limitations with his size and skating, he was basically, you know, if you had to come up with a poster child for a guy who would struggle 
to translate up levels, it would be him. And he had none of that. He uh, scored way more goals than I would have ever thought. I thought if he was going to succeed in the NHL, it would be as like a, one of those guys whose stat lines at the end of the year is like 10 goals and 47 assists. Yep. Uh, but he almost split that evenly and looked d- dangerous with the puck constantly. Obviously he had his struggles off the puck and, um, and in physical board battles, but I was super impressed with how he progressed as the season went on. And, more importantly, didn't seem to trail off as the season went on, as happened with a lot of players on this team. I think I agree that his name should be the mix. I will say, I don't think he trailed off, but I think it's something that happens to most players of his size and his NHL experience happened, which is that the physicality and the grind of the game really warmed down. I know he, he was dealing with some stuff that he played through, and you could really see teams take it to him the same way they take it to Lucas Raymond. Like every elbow was thrown their way, every hit along the boards, extra cross check. You see a guy that small and that effective on the ice, it's almost you're crushing them every single time. It's your responsibility on the other team to do that. That's you not, let you let someone smaller than you physically off the hook. Everybody notices that. Yeah. So that's something that I think didn't surprise him. It's just it's how things go. It's some with some of his stature. Um, I, I will say I'm impressed. Like you mentioned, Brad, he did kind of keep that production to some degree and we saw it come back in waves, especially towards like the last little bit of the season. Uh, I appreciate the way he worked through that and for him to get the call up from Grand Rapids and it stuck a lot of credit to Bergeron for that. I think, uh, when we look at the future of the Red Wings top six, top six wingers, Bergeron could be a bigger part of that than people give credit for. So his emergence was really, really important for the team. Is that your most improved player as well? No, my most improved player is Michael Rasmussen. Damn it! I shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have asked me, but I'm I'll let you. I'll idiot. let you talk about him. I'm an idiot. Yeah. Um, as the number one Michael Rasmussen uh, fan in the uh, Red Wings universe, um, I will. When vote. did that happen? I don't know. I you know I can you just self appoint myself. Okay. Yeah. I would say he is my most improved player this year. Yes, he was injured, but. You could definitely see, feel a bit of a different mojo, different vibe with the team once he was out. Yeah. I mean, he only had 39 points, but that was in 50-some games. So he's over half a point player this year. And I remember us talking about him at the start of last season about how was he even in the NHL. So the fact that he sort of turned it around, he's simplified his game. I think his skating has improved drastically from where it was, relatively speaking. Um I think he, for me, he is the most improved player on this team. Um, and, I, you know, if he can stay healthy, I think there's going to be a lot more expectation on Michael Rasmussen going forward. And I think a lot of his success came from just keeping it simple, not trying to be the ninth overall pick. Yeah. Um, just, you know, playing better in the small areas. He was so much better when he focused on small area hockey. Um, so I'll be, I'll be very interested to see how his season goes next year. The Red Wings talked a lot about the way the team felt after he was gone. And, you know, Eisman and his presser said they're not going to go out and seek to get someone 6'5", 240 who's just going to punch you in the face every game. But in terms of, you know, that identity that I talked about, when they didn't have Michael Rasmussen, they had they lost almost all of their snarl. Like, Dylan Larkin chasing Jeff Skinner to the middle of the ice. Yeah, good that he defended Lucas Raymond, depending on how you feel about that play. But you wish, again, that it wasn't Dylan Larkin. Like, Michael Rasmussen, I think you put it perfectly, Evan. He stopped trying to be a player that he wasn't, 
found his role in the team, and it doesn't mean that he didn't produce. He did produce. His production was better than ever. 10 goals, 19 assists, 29 points in 56 games. That's great. I'll take a half point per game, Michael Rasmussen, every day of the week, especially when he had the impacts on the the team's kind of uh, identity and and morale like he did. So credit to him. It hurt a lot when he took that kneecap injury. Um, Yeah, that makes me sick. That was... (laughs) That's a lot of pain, especially for a big guy, but a healthy Michael Rasmussen should make a big difference to Detroit next season. Between Marco Casper and Michael Rasmussen, are we sure Dan Campbell wasn't running around the LCA? <laughs> Only a matter of time before we married those uh, those two. Kneecaps are a theme in Detroit. It's, it, not, it's not all bad. It really is. Uh, the only reason I wouldn't put Rasmussen as the most improved player is, is semantics more than anything else because I, th- I feel like everything we saw from him this year we really started to see towards the end of last year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, obviously he he still improved, but and he was building off of that. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like we we figured out what the baseline for Rasmussen was in the last third of last season, and then he just carried that over and continued on that trajectory. It's very difficult with Red Wings, like young Red Wings players, to be like if they can continue to just keep doing this, they'll be better. Yeah. It feels like we've said that so many times and it just falls off a cliff. Cut, repeat, fill in the blanks with an ad lib. Yeah. Most disappointing. Now. This is the extended seven hour version of the the Wing Wheel podcast. It's funny talking about this now because in previous years, the answer used to be most of the team. (laughs) Their best players are, were like 50 point players and that sucks. And their worst players were like way below replacement uh, level and that sucks this year you're gonna see a zero in on more guys and you know two names jump to mind for me i'll start with one which is that it really is unfortunate the way alex nadelkovich's season played out uh, i believe that he's a goaltender with talent i think we've seen that in some games this year but an nhl goalie is made of two things talent and consistency and the consistency part of it is almost the most more important part of it yeah, if you're There's trying to... lots of guys who carve out a 10, 15-year career just by being consistent. They may not even be good. <laughs> Honestly, like players who can do that. Craig Anderson just retired. Like, and was he at the top of his game for all of those years? No, of course not. But he made himself regularly available and could be relied upon within reason to perform within a set range. And that's what was so shocking about Alex Nadelkovich's season, is because the way he was letting goals in a lot of the time wasn't like, oh, there's a technical deficiency or he has a massive flaw in his lateral game or his glove hand is terrible. It's like, no, it was these weird yips that goalies sometimes get and pucks were just going through him like Swiss cheese. And it was like, you knew. He felt it. The team felt it. The team played differently in front of him. And for a goalie who had so much promise who when he came over from Carolina, we were practically jumping out of our seats because we were like, this could be an answer in net for the next you know, three to five years. And then now barring it was three to five months instead yeah you can't have an inconsistent goalie like that who's going to sink a team you need to get a save at the end of the day no matter what the story is no matter what the name is behind uh, uh behind the goalie that we're talking about you need to get a consistent save and that's what not what alex Nedeljkovic put out now i do think we saw some games where you're like no obviously this is why this guy's in the nhl and he's he's still mighty talented but I don't blame the Red... I wish it had gone differently, but I don't blame the Red Wings for making the decision that they did. Now, how does Helberg stack up against him? I'm not sure that he's much different in my mind. I don't think either of them really moved the needle in the positive direction this year, but 
still in terms of potential ned for me was was probably one of if not the most disappointing uh, stories for the red wings yeah um you know the low-hanging fruit here would be ben Sherratt, but Honestly, his impact was about what I expected. He was better in some ways than I thought. He was worse in other ways, but overall his impact was, not to sound overly harsh, about as negative as I was expecting it to be. No, that's fair. So I'm, I'm not going to say he was disappointing. Yeah, he, he felt as advertised. Uh, the contract, you could argue the disappointment. Um, for me, and I want to clarify this before I say it, disappointing doesn't mean bad. Okay, I don't think this player was bad. I don't think he had a bad season, but... Relative to expectation, relative to the contract, and relative to where this team is at, for me, it's Andrew Cobb. Really? I don't I don't no, think no. he was bad. I yeah, think yeah. he was good. It's not that I think he had a bad season. I think he had a good season. Um, and he, he brought a lot of what Detroit needed. And, you know, even though on a per-game basis, his counting stats weren't where they have been in previous years. I think that's understandable because he was coming from a very strong offensive team with the Rangers and the Jets uh, in, in that time. For me, it's just the Red Wings had such a big need at second line center that he filled adequately, but not to the level the team needed. And the contract that he signed obviously was kind of a statement of expectation of not only did he need to replicate what he was doing, he needed to improve upon that because the Red Wings were paying him for that. And it just wasn't there to the level the Red Wings needed. And again, you can sit and yell at me and go, well, that's not Andrew Kopp's fault. Andrew Kopp's fault. That's the organization's fault. That's Steve Eisenman's fault. That's fan expectations fault. And you're right on all those points but that doesn't change what he was brought in to do. And did he do that better than anybody else on this roster would have done? Yes, absolutely. But again, did he do it to the level the team needed? No, he did not. See, it's interesting to me. And so in 2021, 2022, between the Rangers and the Jets, he did have more, like that was his highest career point total. That was, I think, 53 points. And yeah, he had 42 and 82 games this year. So people often forget that uh, he did play across two teams last season, higher power teams uh, with the Rangers, especially. But when the news came out that he was having core surgery, it was almost just like a passing thing in the bulletin and you almost didn't pick it up. And then you see a slower start to the season and he missed preseason and, and had to shake off the rust. And we said, oh, well, he's going to take a little while to get his feet under him. Then you give him the allowance in that regard to say, yeah, it's going to take a little while before we, we really see Andrew Kopp. And then folks really started to feel disappointed. I think our, us included around like the November mark when we were like, we're still not seeing Andrew Kopp. And then it was really kind of emphasized, hey, the core surgery he had is more of a sub substantial thing that's given credit for. It's just not talked about very widely. And, you know, you take that at face value, but for me personally, Brad, what I saw was the second half of the season was more of the Andrew Kopp as advertised. Is he a league average second line center? No. But I think if we get a full season of what the first or the second half of his season was in Detroit, I actually feel fairly satisfied with that. I'm not sure I could put him in. It's it, yeah, if you want to qualify it as the season is disappointing because you're not you know blaming him for the injury, but the injury still existed. It, for me, I'd stick an asterisk on it. I don't know how uh, if that's fair or not, but the second half really kind of quelled the the fear for me with Andrew Kopp and his contract. Well, the, the problem for me isn't necessarily the injury. And the again, 
he played well. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not upset with how he played. For me, the big sticking point is he got paid to be a second line center. He wasn't a second line center. I mean, he filled the role, but he wasn't that guy. And again, is that fair to Andrew Kopp to put that on him? No, of course it isn't because you throw that money in front of Evan. I'm sure he's signing that contract, even though it's a bit of a pay cut. Uh, I'm I'm of the mind that if if you... I'd have to work way more. I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> if a player, like, uh, it's different when a player, like, Think of when Abdelkader got his money. Like, that was ridiculous from day one, and you can't blame But he was held to the standard of that contract for the rest of his tenure with Detroit. And I think for a player like Andrew Kopp, who went into unrestricted free agency and demanded that term and money, I think it's, I don't think it's unfair at all to hold players like Kopp, Schrott, and whoever else to. If you're going to ask for it, yeah, these, yeah. Are, these are the expectations that yeah. will be put upon you. I'm retroactively defending Justin Abdelkader here, just to make that abundantly clear for everyone. <laughs> we we all loved Abby, and we never stopped loving Abby. We just wish there was a way we could stop paying. <laughs> That's how Only we feel time. about me. <laughs> Only time. <laughs> I understand. I do understand what you're saying, Brad. And I think it's marginal. I think this debate will be settled maybe 41 games into next season. Very true. And also the big positive of this for me is, you know, Nedeljkovic is, was you know, an obvious answer, but he's a, he was always going to be the backup goalie this year. Once they signed Huso. I think there was a chance he could have a a chance, but obviously the way Huso was playing, it wasn't going to happen. And Sherratt, again, the low hanging fruit, there weren't a ton of candidates for this category beyond this small group. It was Ned challenging for starter and the two big ticket free agents. Who else on this team really disappointed from what expectations were? It's a very small group. You could make an argument for Lucas Raymond, but with how common sophomore slumps are, it wasn't shocking. Uh, Beyond that, I even, you know, you could say Zadina, but what were expectations? (laughs) What, What were expectations going into this season? They weren't much. Stay tuned in the next 15 seconds. Yeah. Okay, but I actually, I'm going to be the one to be the bad guy here. I'm going to talk about Sherratt because for me, it's, yeah, he came in and he got the money that he did. I don't think the contract is as atrocious, but it's, you off the hop, Brad said, like, this is what you expected. I had a little bit more hope that he could adapt to what Detroit needed him to be. And I blame part of this on deployment. Like, part of this is on the coaching staff for playing Sherratt as they did, but he just didn't fit well in in how he was deployed i think there's too much of that same issue for his play all year where it was just unpredictability and recklessness in terms of where he was committing with the puck now he did bring you know offensive output with the puck on a stick on the blue line you've said before on this podcast brad he is among the better of the red wings defensemen on that blue line with the puck on a stick like good things tended to happen it wasn't all bad but it was just like absolute. It was like Russian roulette with every time he went, like he he activated. He was all over the ice, and that's the opposite of what the Red Wings needed him to be. They needed him to be the veteran presence next to Mo Sider as he uh, kind of went through the growing pains of his sophomore season. They needed him to be a stabilizing force on the second pair when he moved down there. They weren't going to play, play him on the third pair. I personally would have, uh, or at least for more time there. But I mean, I understand the Red Wings weren't really working with a lot of personnel. Like Hag Lindstrom was a third pair defense. You can only do so much, so I'm not going to pin that on Sherratt. But yeah, for me, in terms of the contract he got and and what he's brought to the team, you'd want more from Sherratt. That's a story that we've talked about all year, and which is why we're not going to hammer it to death here, but 
he's also that's a guy who went who's gone through a lot this season. So you'd hope through the offseason and the next season the Red Wings find a plan to kind of sand down those rougher parts of his game and, and get him to fit into the role that benefits set the players him around up him. for success. You can set him up for success. That's why I think he was successful in other teams. Like he was set up and, and played in a way that was conducive to his success. And I just don't think well, depending who you talk to, he was never good on those other teams. He just got the reputation. Well, I think he got that reputation somehow. Like I, I think what well, we knew, we know his strengths. We watch Ben Sherratt, bomb of his shot, great skater, decent hands, hits like a freight train, all things you love in a defenseman. He just made exceptionally poor decisions all the time. So if you're a GM who loves your toolsy players, you're going to love Ben Sherratt. And uh, you have to state, like, the, the room loves him. They, he's another leader on the team, and, and Eisenman made a, made a point to bring in guys who could be veteran leaders, someone other than Larkin to, to be a face in that room, especially as they are trying to foster their young core's development. I guess this is kind of a sign of the times of the new NHL where, you know, the two guys we kind of ISOed on here, the contract, were, they were the two contracts that came with the biggest expectations, and you know, if you separate the player, was Ben Schrott an acceptable bottom pair guy this year? Yeah, probably. And you're probably happy to be on him. Was Andrew Kopp an acceptable third line center, second line winger type this year if that was how he was deployed? Absolutely. And we would have been thrilled with it, with both of them for that role. But they signed contracts that came with bigger expectation. And the reality was neither of them lived up to their contract. And here we are. Yeah. Okay. Can I, I have one more. Uh, just a maybe a footnote. It's honorable, dishonorable mention. <laughs> however, however, the name that I'm about to mention, uh, you can take. Um, mine's Jake Verona. I'm not gonna. You know, we've had we've had this conversation a million times, and have for obvious reasons, you know, stayed out of speculation. Yeah. But you know, when the season started, we we're talking about. Look how good this top six is. We've got a, a goal, a huge goal scorer in in Jake Verana. How's this season going to play out? And the car was lit on fire and fell off a cliff. Yeah, he the the season plan was that he would come in and be a thirty goal scorer. I'd be surprised to hear anybody say that they weren't looking for a, a massive year from from Jake Verana. Okay, those are your broad strokes kind of uh, season and review thoughts for the Detroit Red Wings. It's not over. Uh, we are going to be covering the forwards more in depth, the defense more in depth, the coaching, the goaltending, all in future episodes. So the season re- in review is going to be a multi-part project. Overall, it's been a mixed bag. It's been a, an interesting season where the positive storylines, like we said, of most side are really finding his game after going through it, uh, where we talked about Dylan Larkin having a career year, uh, where we talked about the team developing more resilience in a bonafide system under Derek Lalone, who, uh, spoiler alert, I do think Derek Lalone had a great first season as Red Wings head coach, especially with the, the roster that he was given. Those are your positive points, but you know, to be in the draft lottery and to be at an 80-point team and you know, in that bottom third of the league, that still is the part that is stinging for Red Wings fans. So it's a it's a nuanced discussion, and I'm fully ready for folks who are going to say you are insane to be optimistic about this, or you're you're way too negative about that part of it. But I said at the start of the year, and I hate past Ryan. I, that guy's such a 
jerk and is incredibly annoying, but this is the very unsexy part of a rebuild. Like this is where you iterate slowly and it's one step backwards, two step forwards, two step backwards, one step forward. It's that kind of mixed bag until things really break through. And I think that's where the Red Wings are in the thick of right now. This is our punishment for when we laughed at Ken Holland when he said rebuilds take 10 years. I, we didn't laugh at him. No, that's, I See, I, I resent when people bring that up and they say, like, the collective we, the royal we, Ryan. The, my laughing was, yeah, he's right. But that was used as an excuse to not do it. And they waited too long. Anyways. <laughs> uh, I want to talk very quickly about uh, a couple of things. First of all, Eisman's press conference, um, we've alluded to it a couple times. He didn't say much. As it is with Steve Eisman, he played it pretty close to the chest spoken generalities also said a lot of the things that we've said today which is that you know is is he thrilled with how things have gone no it's not all bad it's not all good he wishes they were further along but he's also not disappointed in, in certain things like he's there's a lot to be hopeful of i do think with how almost lukewarm his response was and how much he really hammered you know how much growth is going to come with within for next season or at least that's what they hope I think they really want more out of some players, especially Lucas Raymond, especially Joe Valeno, you know, especially guys where it's not necessarily a problem right now, but they expect a lot of Edvinson. They expect a lot of Casper once he gets here. They think that's going to be a bulk of where their production comes from. And I have to think that that's probably a, not, I don't want to say a sore spot, but that's probably a point of focus that they've had this season and that they're really going to work on in the off season. And I, I don't think it's wrong. Like my biggest thing for Lucas Raymond is he had a good season, but he, it could have been way better in my mind. It's a sophomore season. You adjust to the, the league playing you differently. You adjust to the physical nature of the game and, and how you have to keep up and adapt. And, you know, I don't mean just on the ice. I mean, in the weight room and, and how you present on the ice I think he needs to get a lot stronger. I think he needs to think differently in terms of how he shoots, i.e. shoot more, strengthen your shot, your release if you need to. His ceiling is way above his head in my mind right now. Yeah, and you know, obviously the biggest thing in rebuild is you need the improvement to come from within because when you're rebuilding, a huge chunk of your core is very, very young. Lucas Raymond fits that bill. You expect players as they age to get better. So it's a very, very reasonable expectation by Iserman to want more production to come from within. So that's, it gave you a little bit of an idea. And he said all the same things about the free agency. There's not a lot out there and uh, obviously likes to make trades in terms of picks for players, but it all depends on finding a, a partner to dance with. So there's going to be more uh, to come on that front. Some positive news. Before we get into uh, some other topics here, Amadeus Lombardi made his jump from the OHL to the last two games of the AHL season to get a, a cup of tea there. Carter Mazur, by the way, uh, his season was done uh, due to injury, so he didn't play the last two games. Um, I think he may have some offseason work done from something nagging for him from his NCAA time with Denver. Uh, remains to be seen. But yeah, Lombardi made his AHL debut uh, scored with a great cross crease pass, excellent vision to Taro Hirose, and uh, displayed a lot of the skill that we saw in the OHL, showed off a little bit in those last two games. So, again, another bit of positive news for, for Red Wings fans and their prospects. We've said it all rebuilds. You need to find some gems outside of the first round if you want any chance of turning it around, and 
between Soderblom, Mazur, now Lombardi. Maybe those pieces are are starting to fall into place and give the Red Wings the uh, glut of future Red Wings that they need. Yeah. And news that dropped uh, just before the episode today, uh, the Grand Rapids Griffins announced via a general manager who's also assistant general manager of the Detroit Red Wings, Sean Horkoff, uh, that they would not renew the contracts of Griffins head coach Ben Simon, as well as assistant coaches Matt McDonald and Todd Krieger, as well as goaltending development coach uh, Brian Mahoney-Wilson. So that is Ben Simon's tenure as Griffins head coach over um, – after a disappointing Griffin season, let's call it what it is. We heard all year, and you saw all year, the Griffins just weren't, they weren't where they should have been. Understandably, a roster with developing players compared to, you know, grown men who have been in the league for a while. The AHL's a different game, but still, the Griffins shouldn't have been as bad as they were. So the Red Wings, Sean Horkoff took over the Griffins after Pat Verbeek left to Anaheim last year. And with this full year under his kind of control, and obviously with Eisman's input, they've decided to to clean house this seemed like unanimously it was overdue and there were a lot of questions about you know how much should a player develop there how much should that player have developed why don't they play the same system as the red wings etc it it felt like the writing had been on the wall for a while now and you also have to understand with Derek alone coming in uh, you don't just make changes to your your nhl team's head coach if he's going to be there for a long time and this is all part of like a newer administration, which I don't know if you can call Eisman new anymore, having come in in 2019, you want the entire pipeline to to follow the kind of same development path. So if you didn't view Ben Simon as fitting into that mold, uh, you hate to typecast guys just based on who the head coach was previously. I know Blashill was compared to Babcock and then Ben Simon to Blashill. But again, you, you bring in, quote unquote, your guys and... Uh, get the kind of systems in and get the kind of development in that you need to. So uh, I know Max Boltman, uh, there was a, uh, a suggestion that uh, based on Toledo's season, this is from M underscore Boltman on Twitter, uh, he noted that walleye coach Dan Watson um, would be one of the top candidates potentially for Grand Rapids. He knows he's close with Derek Lalone as well, so there's a connection on that front, and we know what Toledo did this season uh, we've been following them closely because of their success with Sebastian Costa. So I think that's a great note for Max there um, and probably one of the leading candidates. But regardless, the Red Wings are going to, they have an opportunity here to, you know, not just clean house and, and note also the goaltending development coach change. So probably some expectation that whoever's filling that in is going to have a big Cosa flavor uh, to what their priorities will be. Uh, but the Red Wings are going to install something a little bit more like what they want, not just from their development, of players, but also the success of that program. And then very quickly, the Griffins also just announced that they reassigned seven players to the walleye. Seth Barton, Donovan Sabringo, Emil Vero, uh, John Lethman, uh, Trenton Bliss, Kirill Tutaev, and Drew Warad. So I know folks were wondering about uh, which of the Griffins would go down for Toledo's playoff run, and there you go. And in some NHL news, the coaching carousel is picking up once again, starting off Everyone in Pittsburgh has gone from Brian Burke and hockey ops to uh, the general manager, Hextall. Everyone except for Mike Sullivan, their head coach, is gone as Fenway Sports Group, the ownership group uh, over there, decides to clean house. That is a team that is going to be interesting to watch because what on earth do you do as Crosby, Malkin, and uh, Latang have no interest in waiting out a rebuild because they want to keep winning now? I don't even know how much I want to pile on 
to the Pittsburgh brass getting canned because the Pittsburgh beat writers have gone hard the last 48 hours. It's worth searching out some of these articles and reading their thoughts on uh, uh, what Ron Hextall's legacy is going to be in Pittsburgh because they they were just plainly scathing. It's not. It wasn't subtle for sure. I I wasn't left wondering what the thoughts were on Hextall. I have to wonder, like, how rude was he to some of these guys in the background? Because if Steve Eisman got fired tomorrow, I don't think the Red Wings uh, writers are going on the absolute tirade the Pittsburgh writers have been. There's yeah, a lot of lines to read between for sure, but I mean, you can't argue with with the material facts that were put forward in terms of what Hextall did. It was baffling. Rutherford, in a lot of the decisions he made, was left in a much better light. Well, he had cups, and he, he absolutely, uh, Rutherford nuked the Penguins' future, but he got cups out of it. That is, when you're going to do that, that is the goal. Uh, Hextall kind of did the same thing and missed the playoffs. And, you know, every decision he made was just laughably bad. A second round pick for the husk and contract of Michael Granlund. Dmitry Kulikov coming in to fix your defense. Remember when he uh, got rid of Jared McCann so they could protect Jeff Carter at the expansion draft? Uh, 42 goal score with the Seattle Kraken this year, Jared McCann. Mm -hmm. Like every move he made just seemed to be laughably bad. Uh, elsewhere in the NHL, Dallas Eakins was let go in Anaheim. Laviolette and the Washington Capitals agreed to uh, mutually agreed to part ways, which is, you know, Washington didn't want him back. Laviolette wanted to find his next opportunity sooner rather than later. Brad Larson in Columbus was also let go. It's always, I mean, I say this as uh, covering a team that let go of Jeff Blaschel, um, but whenever guys who were coaches of teams that were intended to be bad, they get let go, you wonder. How are they going to be judged for future opportunities? Not all of them are going to be like they'll have their chances potentially. Well, if I know anything about the NHL, it's they will have their chance. Yeah, and uh, you know that's kind of what some guys sign up for. You know, you're going to be the 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 head that gets cut off. Um, and, you know, if you're a good coach but you're on a terrible, terrible team, you know, you interview well, you'll get another chance, no problem. All right, let's uh, let's take a look forward to the Stanley Cup playoffs, which start on Monday night. So the matchups are set in the West. We have Colorado uh, against the Seattle Kraken. We have Dallas against Minnesota, Vegas against Winnipeg, and Edmonton against L.A. In that series rematch, as the rain comes down torrentially outside, if you hear that, uh, we have Boston against Florida in the East, Toronto and Tampa Bay, Carolina against the Islanders and the Devils against the Rangers. So where do we want to start? Let's start in the Western Conference here. Colorado with no Gabe Landeskog for the entire playoffs confirmed against the Seattle Kraken, who are, I don't know, that's an interesting team to play their first playoff berth in franchise history, of course, in their just their second year. Predictions? Colorado in six. Six games? I was sort of feeling that too. They, you know, they've won. They know how to do it. First crack for the... Kraken. I honestly did not plan that. I apologize. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't plan that. Uh, yeah, I'll say Colorado in six as well. I'm going to go Colorado, but I'm going to go seven. I think Seattle's going to make some noise and make things potentially diff more difficult. Did Miko Rantanen have the quietest? Did he get 50? Yes. Is that the quietest 50 goals season of all time? Braden Point this this year as well could make a, a case. Yeah. Like This scoring is so up in the NHL, and I think it's for the best. But there were, what, 11 100-point getters across the league? Yep. 
something like that. So yeah, it was. It, Detroit had none that cracked eighty. <laughs> Braden Point, Leon Drysdale, Miko Ranson, and David Pasternak, Connor McDavid, all fifty plus goal scores. Yeah, that's Nuts. that's crazy. Uh, okay, Dallas, Minnesota. Oh, that series is going to be a bloodbath. Dallas in seven. For me, it, it's going to be a Dallas series win. I'll say six just to be polite, but I could see that uh, being even shorter. I was going to say five. Yeah. I was going to say Dallas in five. I I think Minnesota is a very good team. I, I credit to what Bill Guerin has done there in keeping that team. Like that, he had to construct that team very creatively. I think having Kirill Kaprizov also helps a lot, but Dallas is a stud team in so many ways. Vegas, Winnipeg. <sighs> So tell me what to think on this because I saw a lot of people saying Winnipeg, but Winnipeg is such a dumpster fire. Yeah, I was going to pick Vegas in three if that was an option. I don't know that I can do that when Connor Hellebuck's no, on the other side. No, that's the reality of it is. I'll give Vegas a gentleman sweep because I do think Hellebuck will make this more of a series than it needs to be, but also the, these teams are vastly different. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mark Stone's coming back for Vegas. Yeah. So I'm going to go Vegas in five. I'll go Vegas in six because I think Connor Hellebuck might be tougher. And I think when Winnipeg is good, they're good. But when they're bad, they're bad. Can Winnipeg bring it all together, which they have not shown to be able to do, and beat Vegas? That really is the question to me. And I think it's no. I'll say Vegas and just to be different, I'll say seven. Because I, who who knows? This is all made up. Right? I'm I'm hoping Vegas does it in four and very, very just absolutely ruining any shred of hope Winnipeg had just so that maybe Kevin Shovel day off answers the phone a little more often this spring. That said, I think Winnipeg at their best this year could beat Vegas. It's just, if the stars align, I there, I can understand the debate. Edmonton, LA, because right now we all agree three for three so far. So this is dangerous territory, but Edmonton, LA, how do you not pick Edmonton? I'll go six just for the sake of it being an interesting series, but my God, the the path, the absolute war path McDavid and Dreisaitl are on right now. If Edmonton's goaltending holds up even a little bit, they got to be the favorites to come out of the West, but their goaltending is going to scare the living hell out of everybody picking them. Hasn't Edmonton been like the best team since like February or something like that? I have an Edmonton sweep here. They haven't. Really? They yeah. have wow. eight regulation losses since Christmas, I think I read. You know what? For me, this one shouldn't be difficult. This, I have difficulty with this one and that Winnipeg Vegas series, and I have no idea why. Maybe it's because those games occur way past my bedtime, yeah. like hours before my bedtime. But I still, you know, Philip Deneau will cause issues for Edmonton and goaltending obviously still remains a question mark. Um, but I mean, how do you possibly bet against Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid? I'll say Edmonton in six. Going over to the east, Boston, Florida. I've seen some, okay. I've seen varying opinions on this. I've seen people chuckle as you're you are right now. Evan. I won't make you edit. I'll I'll, be, I'll behave. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I have a hard time seeing Florida as the upset here. And now we know what's going to happen in two weeks when I have to sit here and say, "Wow, was I wrong about that?" But with the way Boston is going, with the goaltending goaltending they got this year, I just don't see how Florida comes out of this. 
I will give them a game because I think Matthew Kachuk should be one of the finalists for MVP because he's basically just willed that team into the playoffs. And I think he deserves one game. Florida is a very good team. They're one of the better eight seeds we've seen in recent memory. And, you know, Matthew Kachuk's really good. They have Barkov. Their goaltender right now is Alex Lyon, but they still have Ekblad. Florida is a very, very, very good team. Boston in four. Yeah, you think the sweep? I think the sweep. I'll give them a game as well. I mean, I'll, I'll say Boston in five. We are we are five for five, all matching on series so far. This is dangerous. I think we're com- getting towards some of the more There's two series that I think. Yeah. Toronto, Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay in seven. Tampa and six. I got Toronto on this one. Hey, we're different. Seven. Uh, there's no, if Toronto it, overcomes their demons, there's no way they do it. Well, I shouldn't say no way. Actually, no, I changed my mind. I'm going to say Toronto and six. Explain. I, since you're the one who's different than us, you have to justify your reasoning. I think Tampa is a little banged up. I think Tampa is played more hockey than anyone over the last however many, four years. I think this is the best version of this matchup that Toronto could have ever asked for. And if they're going to do it, if they're going to vanquish their demons, they have to do it somewhat definitively. I am. If you're a Toronto fan and you see game seven, uh, you have to be scared. It doesn't matter how you got there. It's just that's when their their mind space starts to collapse. So if they do it, they'll do it in six and they'll just get it done with. And I, it's funny because I agree with everything you said, and I but, still think But Tampa. it's still, yeah. it's still yeah. Toronto. <laughs> Lazy counterpoint, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah. If if Tampa Bay was at 100% health, I don't know where Tanner Janot is at right now, I, I, but, but like, if they weren't so banged up this year and I didn't see such a poor version of the Tampa Bay Lightning in the latter what, half or third of the season, then I might think differently, but I think Toronto... This is their best opportunity to do it. So whatever, I'll pick Toronto in six. Carolina, New York Islanders. I hate how much this series scares me. Well, I hate it. I we we need them to just not go to the conference final. That's right. Detroit owns the Islanders' first round pick this year, and if they don't go, if they win this series but lose in the second round, the pick is still at what seventeen or eighteen. Yeah. Um, this series is the one I've circled as if you're looking for that big upset, the most likely. I'm still not picking it. I'm going Carolina in seven, but I think the Islanders are, if you're looking for that unexpected winner in the first round, it would be them. Because Carolina, was it Prashant was saying, they have no left wingers. They're all injured. But Carolina is also still still very good and a very deep team. They've still got Aho. They've still got Slavin, Pesci, Burns. You know, it's... They, they've got the horses that can go, and I just I don't think the Islanders have those. The only thing the Islanders have going for them, really, is Sorokin, but that's one hell of a thing to have going for you. So you're, say, you're still saying Carolina? I'm still saying Carolina, but I'm going to put it in seven. I will have the same, same argument I had about Matthew Kuchuk as Ilya Sorokin. I think he is a world beater right now, and I'll give him two games. I just really think Sebastian Ajo is going to make the difference in this series. I don't know. I feel like Sebastian Ajo can really counter that. That's a good point. You you can never count Sebastian Ajo out, especially when it comes to you know how he matches up against Sebastian Ajo. In the big moment, though, like can Sebastian Ajo really overcome Sebastian Ajo? Though, anyways, uh, I would. <laughs> 
I am going to say, maybe I'm just trying to be different in here. I'm going to say Islanders in seven. Again, they're the most likely upset. It would just make me sad if they did. Rangers Devils. Uh, this has to be the biggest coin flip of the entire playoffs. Right? Absolutely. One of them has Shesterkin. The Devils are one of the like most promising up and coming teams in the NHL. And and wow, what a turnaround this series. How do you pick this one confidently? Confidently, you don't. That's the reality of it. Is um the Rangers have more holes in their lineup, but the Devils have the more significant hole. Uh, the Devils are a more complete team, but how much faith can you have in Vitek Vanacek? The Rangers have a lot of question marks. They, some of their players are underperforming. Some of their players on the older side, but they have Igor Shesterkin. I really don't know what to make of this series. Everything in my head's telling me to go with the Rangers, but I know how this goes when my brain does that. So I'm going New Jersey in seven. I'm going to, it's tough. I agree with what you said, like how everything stacks up. I love watching the way Jack Hughes has emerged. I love the way New Jersey has really kind of their roster, the way they've built it. It all kind of came together this season. It's a lot of fun to watch, but you can't discount the Rangers, what they've done before the talent that they have. And they bring in a winner like Patty Kane. Yeah. In my mind, when it's close, you take the team with the better goalie, and and that's Tamisha Sturkin. So I'm going to say Rangers in seven. This series is anything less than six games. It's a massive loss for hockey fans in the NHL. Yeah. Um, I will just say I'll take the Devils because they are playing better coming into the playoffs. Um, mind you, to me, it's a seven-game series, and it really honestly is a coin flip, and I could be swayed either way. I just really like how New Jersey's played this year. They're up-tempo. They got a lot of young kids who are who are ready to make the next step. Um, I'll go Devils in seven. Okay. That's our quick NHL playoff first-round preview. We'll give, a, we'll give you our full... Uh, maybe brackets next episode, but uh, we want to make sure we got this in ahead of the playoffs. So again, that is uh, the playoff preview. It's also our Red Wing season in review part one. You know, if you thought today's discussion was nuanced, there's way more to dive into as we get into the minutia of the season and, and recapping exactly where the Red Wings are at. We have some interviews and stuff coming up for you. But for now, let's jump into overtime. Overtime is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. If you want to support the show, uh, our expanded content network with Expected by Whom. If you want us to uh, continue to be able to support the Jamie Daniels Foundation and, and grow this show and do everything that we're able to do, it's all through our Patreon support. Uh, you Again, you get access into the Discord. Uh, you get access to our Patreon-exclusive overtime bonus episodes, and you also uh, are autom- automatically entered into all of our giveaways. Again, this season we gave away two tickets to every Red Wings home game. Most of them, the vast majority of them, went to Patreon supporters. So patreon.com slash wheel podcast some good questions today uh let's start with ari fragan says uh, given edmondson and casper taking big steps next season and let's say mazer slash lombardi slash wallander slash uh johansson all come up and play well what's the best best case scenario for this team next season obviously free agents and maybe a trade will be made to add players but i don't see a ton of roster turnover from outside additions as much as internal talent thanks for everything this season fellas Best case scenario for this team next year is is squeaking into the playoffs. I will say they're not 
making it with six rookies. I could see two, maybe three of those guys being regulars next year. And even I think three is stretching it, but within the realm of possibility. Um, I don't think they make any noise in the playoffs, but I, I could see a reality where they kind of just get across that finish line and squeak in, however unlikely. Yeah, I'll play in the hypothetical, but I'll agree with you, Brad, that that's probably where, with that many rookies, like, good players are good, but it takes a while for good players to come together into a good team, and, and we've seen that time and time again, so you, I don't I don't think they'd be world beaters, but they could still probably achieve something, but I'll echo what you said, Brad. I don't think all of those guys will make it. Uh, Give Wallman the heart says, is it going to be harder for Soderblom to make the team next year than it was this year? Unless the Red Wings dump some guys in offseason trades, there are very few spots open in the forward group once everyone is healthy, even if every every upcoming free agent leaves. Now Elmer will have to compete with Casper, Mazur, and Lombardi. If you want to be a good team, it should be harder. That's the reality of it. <sighs> harder in a different way. Yeah, he... He still had to outcompete guys for his opening night roster spot this year, but those guys were Phillips, Zadina, and Pew Suter. Now, he also had to overcome the fact that he they didn't have a... They'll never admit to having a spot penciled in for for players. They always say, and I think they they go by this in the end, you have to earn your spot, but they weren't expecting Soderblom to do what he did. And he overcame that, and that's incredibly hard. Next year, you're right. He's got to compete with Casper. He's got to compete with Mazur, who I, I still believe is going to make noise. I don't know that Lombardi is going to be the one to to make the jump, but you never know. You could have an amazing camp depending on how much he strengthens himself over in the offseason. So yeah, I, I think there is some truth to that statement in a in a different way. Uh, Jennifer Morris says, have any Red Wings announced they'll be playing in the World Championships? Who do you think will play for their respective co- uh, countries? Uh, not announced, but I think there are guys who you can expect uh, to be named. I would expect Jake Wallman to get the the Canadian call-up, thus ending his his uh, free agency. I would expect Kubelik. I would expect Suter. Um, you know, Valeno probably to Canada. Those are some of the names that you can Cider, expect Cider, Raymond, if they choose to. Yeah, there's... Uh, it all depends on who actually chooses to go, who needs the time to kind of clean up some injuries and things. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. We don't know who wants to go and you can pencil a lot of these guys in on skill but you know Larkin was injured for the last part of the season does he want to go play in a world championship while he's still not feeling great who knows uh the gyms says looking back at the trade deadline I, f- I still feel like trading Heronic was a mistake due to what it will take to get a point producing right shot d do you still think the return was worth the hole it was create that was created in the lineup time as will long- tell as long as the islanders don't make the conference finals i'll say yes yeah, there's a big difference. I, I like it's a it's a massive difference. Like you could argue the Red Wings lose that trade comfortably if the Islanders win two rounds because that pick gets bumped down 11, 12 spots. I don't know about comfortably. I, I still think I might do the trade maybe with <sighs> a little bit of a different look. I don't know. Cause like, well, you know, the talent gap between a mid first and a late first is significant. Generally speaking. Now, that being said, you always can beat the odds or and get a better player at 28 than you would have got at 18. But statistically speaking, it's a significant gap. And last question here from Lars Thorzell says, hello, lads. Since we're winning the draft lottery and picking Bedard, appreciate the optimism, Lars. Uh, with our first pick, do you rather pick another forward or one of the interesting right shot defensemen with the second pick? 
Axel Sandin Pelica, Tom Wallinder, or would you prefer we went for a defenseman in the second round with a guy like Oliver Bonk? Second round. Pick another forward there. Uh, Connor Bedard will need someone to be his running mate, so might as well try and grab one in the same draft. I don't think actually where the Islanders pick is going to be, uh, Pelica is even going to make it that far, truthfully. Uh, and there's nobody else in this draft that I like enough that I would probably even consider it. So, one, I think the Red Wings will still have a much bigger need at forward. And two, the guys worth grabbing there probably aren't going to be there. Yeah. First of all, you're going to have to find Evan and I running through the streets to get us back to to continue draft coverage if the Red Wings have the opportunity to draft Connor Bedard. So I understand the sentiment of who cares what happens after that, but I won't even say no to a defenseman. I'll just say whoever the best player available is at that point. But knowing the needs on forward, unless there's a massive drop of an outstanding defenseman for great value at pick hopefully 17 or 18, I wouldn't necessarily go out of your way to target a defenseman. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, the way the next few episodes are going to go on uh, late Wednesday or early Thursday, you're going to see our next episode. It's going to be pre-recorded. Uh, so you're going to, we're going to record that on Tuesday night and it's going to come out for you a little bit later. That's going to include part two of the Red Wings season in review. It's going to include an interview with Max Boltman and whatever else happens between now and then. And then the episode after will probably be Sunday night, the following Sunday night, if not maybe Monday morning, but it is going to come at you. And that one's going to, again, barring any major news, it's going to contain a big interview that's going to dive all into our uh, uh, draft content and give you a good primer for what's coming up. For now, we'd like to thank all of you for tuning in, all of our listeners, new and old. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. We know these longer episodes are uh, a lot of fun and uh, sometimes a harrowing review of the year that was, but uh, it also represents another year of amazing support from you. So it really means a lot to us. Uh, to all of our patrons, thank you so very much. Uh, our name level supporters on Patreon, Arjun Shanker, Yves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Bertuzia Straight Up Missing, Nick Perks, Icon, We Are Geelong, the greatest team of all, Glenn Brabham, Aiden White, Keenan O'Donoghue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Croner's Left Knee, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Babe Landeskog, Bros Before Hosas, Carl Brutan and Nanaluski, Chimmy, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets in Tempe, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood, Fight Probert, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kaylin Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Las Ensaladas Picantes, Marcus, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, Nicholas Fritz, R.A., Red 3, Ryan Hubbard, Ryan, the Ryan Hannah Hannah, Scott Martin, Send It Seawolf, Shahid Syed, Shahid, thank you so much, a brand new name level supporter, uh, Scree and Lube, that's what I appreciate about you. Unpickable Nose, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, General Andy Bohan, The Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, number one Red Guys fan. I'm a hardcore butter guy. I'm not saying anything intelligent. And Dios mio, donde esta mi hero? Thank you, Reed. Uh, Aaron, Adam Gwitska, Adam Rose, Antonio Gracias, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, CJ Wilkinson, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheesebag Space Force. Connor Leighton, Corey Prita, Darren Fick, Evans 2018 Kitchener Road Puddles, Frank Stanley, Grand Rapids Hockey Guy, Griffey Boy, Instructions Unclear, Cheesebag No Longer Fresh, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Engels, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Matt Keeler, 
Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Norris Sider, Ophelia, Steven, Tatarsas, and Mahodag. Thank you all very much, and we will talk to you on Tuesday, and you'll hear from us Wednesday or Thursday morning. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.